1: Calvin Cool. Y'all are going to blow me up after you drop that shit. <laughs> I was last time like, when you started going into
2: the,
0: the Indian, Indian treaties yeah, I'm like a <laughs>
1: man. Well, I you know, got to do something.
0: <laughs> This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, it's our Friday look back at the week's top stories in politics, including a big win for Democrats in a special election for George Santos's House seat. U.S. Senate candidates here in California square off in a debate laying bare the lack of interest or maybe the lack of knowledge about policy from one of the top candidates. Also why Democrats are terrified that they might squander a chance to pick up a Central Valley House seat as two Democrats fight each other in an increasingly nasty primary. And up in Sacramento, organized labor revisits bills Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed last year. And the eternal question of what to do about retail theft continues bouncing around the halls of the state capitol with today as the last day to introduce new bills. And here with me, as they are most Fridays, KQED politics correspondents, Marisa Lagos and Guy Marzerotti. Hey, y'all. Hey, happy Friday. Happy, happy Friday. Well, of course, everyone knows today's the deadline for introducing bills in Sacramento, <laughs> right? We miss it. I mean, come on. Uh, but it is. Um, and so there's been a lot of talk about a couple of labor bills that the governor vetoed coming back, one having to do with autonomous trucks uh, and the other having to do with uh, unemployment insurance. Pick one, Guy, and uh, why why are they bringing this one back? Well, I mean, the
2: unemployment insurance was maybe the most controversial bill uh, uh, regarding labor passed last year in a summer in which, you know, organized labor had a lot of success in Sacramento. And this was one that would allow striking workers to qualify for unemployment benefits. This came at a time where we were seeing a lot of labor actions across the state, whether it was actors, uh, screenwriters, hotel workers. Um, The governor vetoed it. He really cited uh, the unemployment fund that California has and the debt that it's accrued um, as kind of a big budget issue staring down at this bill. But Labor's bringing it back again this year, um, which will be interesting to see because the characters in this have not changed. Right. It's the same legislature that passed this bill last year. You know, the governor's uh, has his critique of it. So it'll be interesting to see where this lands with the added uh, elements of an election year. And you have Anthony Portentino, who carried this bill last year, uh, introducing again this year, he's running for Congress. And so many folks uh, in the legislature seeking either re-election or, or other office, that's kind of maybe the added element this year. And Marisa, well, he's not just uh, lo-
1: running for Congress. He's running for Congress against several of his colleagues or former colleagues who also have, like, decent name ID. Um, and it's sort of, I think, you know, one of those knockdown, dragout, dem-on-dem races where you need a way to
0: You do. But, you know, the person who's really gotten the profile on this is Lorena Gonzalez, who is now the head of the California Labor Federation. She and Newsom have not been, I would say, the closest over the years. Uh, so why do you, do you think this is somewhat personal for her, Marisa? Um, I, I, <laughs> I, don't,
1: I don't need a text later. No, I mean, look, I think uh, Lorena is passionate about what she does. And I think she, like everything's kind of personal to her because that's she's the type of person that approaches her work in that way. I, th- I think you could say the same for Newsom in a lot of ways. I mean, he really, you know, I think sticks his neck out when he feels really strongly about I mean, clearly they both have a sense of the j- broader politics. And in her current job, I mean, this is what she's being paid to do is advocate for workers, right? And so I think it makes sense. I mean, the question is, generally when you see, you know, Newsom or another Democratic governor veto something that sort of aligns with his broader priorities. There's generally this like, well, we need to work on this or that. Um, So I think the big question is like, are there going to be conversations happening? Is his office willing to engage whether, you know, with Cal Labor or the author or other groups? Like, is there a middle ground they could come to? And I don't know the answer to that. Otherwise, it could just be to Guy's point, sort of, election year posturing where people like Portantino kind of get the win and and push it forward. I mean, I I think from a policy perspective, we also have to say it is not unusual for big sort of changes or controversial changes to take several years to kind of work their way through the process and get enough support, whether it be in the legislature or the critical mass outside that makes a governor feel like, okay, this is worthwhile.
2: I mean, that's a great point. This bill last year was introduced pretty late in the legislative cycle. And it's a very complex piece of policy with a lot of you know, stakeholders involved. So I think that the maybe more charitable view is they're bringing this back to give it a longer runway to come to some kind of resolution everyone can be down with.
0: So the other bill I alluded to is one that would require a human being to be sitting in an autonomous truck. Uh, this is, of course, a favorite bill of the Teamsters Union. The governor vetoed it last year, saying something loosely about you know, being unnecessary or stifling innovation. But, you know, we've also seen problems with some of these autonomous vehicles here in San Francisco. Cruise uh, has now lost its ability. Uh, they, The CPUC took away their right to drive uh, uh, in the city without anybody in the driver's seat. Um, th- th- of the two that we're talking about, to me, that seems a little less likely for Newsom to budge on because, the, you know, it's the dynamics haven't changed at, that And it's much.
1: early yet. I mean, I think that it makes sense from a labor perspective that this is an issue you want to get Get behind, um, and obviously, this technology is moving quickly. But it that one does seem like there's going to be a lot more sort of folks, you know, layers to it, and questions that are open about the sort of mechanics and and what the policy should look like. And I, I, yeah, I do think I mean, but again, like. I think you have to say, regardless of where you stand on this, that is, it is good that they are, you know, having this conversation because a lot of stuff around we've talked about, like social media, they got caught real flat-footed around. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, another big issue that uh, Marisa, you have dug into a lot in the last several months, is retail theft, and we saw this week, uh, Assembly leadership uh, announce a bill that was going to really go after some of the, the professional retail thieves. I think. Uh, tell us about that because it's it's really sets up this question about Prop 47, the 2014 ballot measure that made it a little harder to prosecute uh, retail theft, property theft uh, for as a felony instead of a misdemeanor.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to toot my own horn here, but a lot of what they unveiled this week really tracks with what I found in my reporting, which is that many of these sort of problems that either are linked to 47 or at least perceived to be linked to 47 may not require that in itself to be changed, that it could, you know, or at least as a start that I think a lot of this stuff, and so we're talking about things Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, from the top end, it's like making sure that online retailers can prove that what they're selling isn't stolen. Right. Putting more onus on these, you know, pretty mainstream actors who have arguably benefited from some of this uh, behavior. Um, They're also looking at yeah, making it easier uh, to do something that I found is one of the biggest problems is that it's virtually impossible, even though the legislature has tried to tackle this issue to essentially charge repeat uh, thieves you know, serial thieves with a felony, even if they're repeatedly going into the same group of stores and stealing, you know, just under that 950 threshold. And I think that, you know, that in itself could be a big, big win uh, for the retail community. I also think
2: it's a a lot of these changes were ones the governor proposed a few weeks back. And I think it just showed a real savviness on the part of the administration to get out ahead with solutions and really kind of redefine the problem here, right? It's like you have organized retail theft, you have shoplifting. The solutions are not the same for both. And I think by the governor getting out there and really focusing on stuff to your you know reporting, if the issue is these things, shoplifting, that aren't resulting in arrests, Focus on solutions that are about policing. So making it so for, you know, like you said, one of the not having to prove, not having to have an eyewitness for some of these shoplifting things, making it easier to aggregate charges. I think now it kind of shifts it back on some of these more moderate Democrats to why is why do you need to go back to the ballot now? Why aren't the things in this bill enough? And you saw a pretty interesting divide here at that press conference between Rick Sabur, who put forward some of these changes and who uh, chaired that you and who know, chaired that committee and Kevin McCarty. Uh, head of the Public Safety Committee, running for mayor of Sacramento, who said, like, I'm leaving the option open yeah. to going back to the ballot. Well, and of
0: course, yeah, going back to the ballot, is it's, it's a lot harder. You got to raise money. It could divide Democratic interest groups. And so doing it through the legislature uh, might just be quicker, uh, and maybe address it more, uh, you know, in a more fundamental way anyway, without going back to the voters. All right. We're going to continue our conversation about the week in politics. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Showing your support
2: is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED podcast too at
0: donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with KQED politics correspondents Guy Marzarati and Marisa Lagos. Uh, let's talk about a very messy primary that has developed a congressional seat in the Central Valley. It's held now by Republican David Valadeo. Democrats really saw this as a pickup and maybe still see it as a pickup opportunity. Rudy Salas, the now former assemblyman, came very close in 2022. He's running again, but so is fellow Democrat state senator Melissa Hurtado. And Guy, it has set up a really nasty primary battle that leaves Democrats wondering if they're, either one of them is going to make it into the top two. Yeah, I think this you get to
2: these weird machinations of the top two primary, and one of them is a situation like this where, depending how the vote share shakes out, Democrats are concerned that perhaps two Republicans, Valadeo and, and another Republican, MAGA could, Republican, could make it into the general election, essentially locking Democrats out of the general election. And we've seen this before. It happened a few years back in a state assembly seat in the Santa Clarita Valley. Where Democrats didn't get their act together and, and and two Republicans ultimately made it to the general election. This was the seat Christy Smith formerly held uh, in the assembly, but the stakes here are so much higher. There's such a thin margin in the House, and and taking back the seat is so key for Democrats nationally that, you know, the stakes here are a lot higher If and it would just be a catastrophic uh, result if it's for the party, if there's two Demo- uh, two Republicans in the general Marisa, election. Marisa, why do
0: you think the you know, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, why didn't they put their, why didn't they get involved this? Was, did they take their eye off the ball on this, do you think? Because, you know, Hurtado was saying, well, Emily's List approached me and suggested that I run. They're now kind of backing away from that. I mean, this seems like a problem that could have been avoided.
1: It does. But, uh, you know, there's 435 congressional districts, right? I I would imagine that they had sort of, I I don't know, maybe they hoped that Hurtado would bow out or that, you know, there would be some sort of clarity leading up to this that would make it so um, that they, you know, that one of them would sort of take a step back. I mean, it is interesting when you see this. And I mean, Hurtado is very young. She's only 35. I think she is run and and legislated as more of an independent voice. And she's not necessarily kind of as yoked to the Democratic machine, you could say. Um, And so, you know, this is like where I think often both parties, but particularly Democrats in this state can get in trouble where, you know, they can talk and talk about wanting, you know, the best candidate out there and letting voters decide. But at the end of the day, like they want to win. And that's more important in these races. And I do think from her perspective, she'd probably say, look, he's lost before. Like, why shouldn't I give this? A, a try, and you know, what? well, she
0: really hasn't raised very much money. I mean, compared to Salas, and now he's attacking her on on uh, in TV ads, ones in Spanish. This is a big Latino uh, district, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, Valadeo has done a pretty good job of maintaining an image of being more moderate. You know, he voted for one of the articles of impeachment. A lot of people down there think he's Latino. He's actually Portuguese. But he's a farmer. What do you? I mean, guys, is this going to be like kind of a stretch anyway for Democrats, and this like nasty intra-party, you know, squabble kind of makes it harder, or does it all depend on who turns out?
2: Yeah, and I don't see this seat as a stretch. I mean, Democrats, given the registration in that district, I think Democrats look at this as a seat where if they get the right turnout. I mean, Valadeo has lost before. Right, mm-hmm. they've they've been able to get in T.J. Cox, remember right, that one? Right, so I think it's it's definitely it's not a stretch for Democrats to imagine this being part of their strategy to take back the House, which just you know yeah. speaks to the importance of the race.
1: But to your point, like Valadeo has been pretty deft and been very good at sort of walking this middle line where he has really been loyal to the kind of hard right MAGA uh, House, you know, Republican conference that's in charge, and yet I think still comes back to the district and really presents him self as a a bit of a moderate voice. and I mean, I think, you know, I've spent a little time in that district. Like, you have to understand that this is not, even with when you look at the plus, whatever it is, Democrat voter registration, uh, the issues that people care about on both sides of the aisle, there are going to be very different than they are in coastal places like San Francisco, right? I mean, this is a place where farming and oil are big business, um, where things like gas prices, you know, just because of the, both how big the district is and just like the economics of it, I think hit a lot harder than they might in some of these other places. And I think Valadeo has been really good at kind of connecting with people on those issues and making them feel that he is representing their interests. Yeah.
0: Um, I want to just real quick uh, you know, there was a, a special election in, on Long Island this week. Tom Swazi, Democrat, knocked off the Republican who was Jewish. Uh, and th- this issue of immigration came up. And, you know, Swazi, a lot of, you know, the national. Political reporters are saying he's found the formula on dealing with border security and dealing with the Hamas-Israel war. Is that something that could translate? Do you think in a place like the Central Valley, where you know maybe immigration and border security are less of an issue? Because they'd rely on farm labor. I mean, is, is there any application of what Swazi did in New York to California?
2: Yeah, you know, I that's an uh, interesting question. Not having followed that race very closely in Long Island, I, I, it seems like he, you know, towards the end, spoke about this compromise on immigration that House Republicans ultimately, uh, Senate Republicans ultimately voted down as maybe a way to say Republicans aren't serious about addressing this. Maybe, you know, you see that that have some legs.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess I would question. uh, It's interesting. There's been some reporting that shows that like Israel Hamas was like played huge. And that's a very Jewish district. I think there's a lot of others of other reporting and data showing that actually it was the way he really positioned himself by holding Biden at arm's length on other issues, right? Because Biden's been pretty supportive of Israel, um, you know, on the border security question. Um, abortion didn't seem to be a huge play there. So, yeah, I think that these are all things. I mean, certainly the idea of holding yourself away from this very unpopular president may be a winning strategy for a lot of folks in swing districts. Um, and that's something, you know, that we've seen somebody like Biden and I think it bears noting like Nancy Pelosi say in the past, right? Like, run against me, run with me. Just, just win, win, baby. baby. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: Um, last, I want to talk about uh, the Senate race, uh, which is uh, happening. There was a debate this week uh, with the top four, the three Democrats and Steve Garvey, the Republican. And we were all talking afterwards about uh, Steve Garvey, uh, who seems to be, you know, uh, very possibly going to make it into the top two. And got, he was asked a question about uh, housing. Uh, that was. And he kind of his answer kind of revealed what his lack of uh, experience, would you say? There were a couple of really questionable moments with Garvey in that debate. One, as
2: you mentioned, he was asked, what's one housing regulation that you would repeal? He's talked about these onerous regulations on developing housing and he couldn't name one. Then there was and then there was another uh, moment of this where he was asked about whether he would accept an endorsement from Donald Trump. And the answer, it was like as if Nikki asked, like, are you circumcised? Like the way he you can play the clip, but
0: it was just like. (laughs) <laughs> let, let, let's hear the- These are personal choices. I only, I answer uh, to God, my wife, family, and to the people of California, and I hope you would respect that I have personal choices. The question was, I am not a- going to be able to get an image out of my head. The, <laughs> the question <laughs>
2: Sorry, was, yeah. would you accept an endorsement from Trump? Like, yeah. is, like, is that's that a relevant. personal? I mean, it that not seems not like a, <laughs> seems like a very relevant question for voters. And beyond just the like his answers, I do think the strategy question here is, Re- to me, a Republican who just wants to get into the general election would say, I'd I love an Trump. endorsement from Trump. Yeah, I, would, I would embrace, you know, it, winning a general election is going to be so difficult. Let's just focus on getting past March. And it's unclear to me what exactly, what's Garvey's he, he strategy He must, like, here? in
0: his head think maybe he can win and he's going to turn off people if he embraces Trump. I mean, is that, uh, who
2: maybe, I mean, and t- to take it back to the voters, like, why does this matter? I do think it, you're setting up a scenario where voters are really not going to get a real robust conversation about the future of governance in this state um, potentially if Garvey's the candidate because it's uh, at that point, are we even going to have debates between him him and a Democrat? Um, and even at these debates, he seems kind of unwilling to engage with a lot of the questions that Well,
1: he's right. Asked. I mean, beyond, okay, so f- set aside, say you don't think it's relevant or you don't care, you think that, you know, the moderator shouldn't push him on the Trump vote, which I got to give credit to, I think Nikki did a yeah. really good job of trying to get into this stuff. I think they were hampered, honestly, by some of the time limits and like, the, you know, you're not going to go back 16 times to the same person Um, but he can't he couldn't answer a simple question about housing regulation. Like, like, that's a gimme question. Like, is there one regulation you would change? It's CEQA, guys. It's the Republican handbook. Like, it's yeah. not even that hard. I mean, I, I just.
0: It, it just shows, I think, it's just his lack of interest in policy or knowledge or maybe just not being very quick on his feet. I don't know. But he, yeah, like or, you said, just you could make something sound plausible if you don't know what CEQA is.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Like, to me, that felt like just like, yeah, not, not as prepared because you could argue that in some of these policy areas, again, he doesn't want to kind of put too sharp. Of a point on his position so that he can appeal to a wide range of people. Uh, This didn't seem like that. I will say another funny moment was asking, you know, a, a stage full of people, two of whom are 75 or over if Donald Trump and uh, yeah. Joe Biden are too, <laughs> too old, old, which was there- Barbara Lee and Steve Garvey, 75 and 77 are like, no, you know. Or like- <laughs> but
2: there were, mo- it was so clear Adam Schiff was at many times throughout that debate invoking Garvey's name in the hopes of, as we talked about previously on this show. Trigger a response. Triggering a
0: response, getting him more airtime. And there were a lot of times where Garvey was just like, I'm good. I'm good, keep, yeah. You know, keep or it going. one-word answers. All right. We're almost out of time, but uh, Monday is President's Day. By the way, we're not going to have a show on that day. But, um, you know, we were talking before we started recording here, like, how are we going to ask a President's Day question? So just a very general question. Give a shout-out to a former president, uh, maybe someone you'd like to have dinner with or something, living or dead. Marisa? All
1: right. I'm going to go with a little sleeper hit, Calvin Coolidge, for his— Silent Cal. —for his— Support of women's suffrage and honestly racial equality at a time when that was like not. A big Republican priority, um, you know, signed the Indian Citizenship Act, giving Native Americans the right to vote. Did you well, know that? Well, uh, oh, okay. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. No, yeah, I did Wikipedia because you asked me five minutes ago to pick a president, and I knew that if I picked anyone in our lifetime, I would not have a job anymore. So.
2: Guy. Uh, well, according to Wikipedia, Warren G. Harding <laughs> died in in San Francisco, you knew that so he's going to get, get my
0: shout out today. All right. Well, we're going for you know presidents who died in, in your home town uh, I'm going to go with Theodore Roosevelt. He didn't die, but he took the oath of office in Buffalo, New York, uh, down on Delaware Avenue. I grew up in the city uh, when McKinley was shot and killed. Uh, youngest president ever, 42 years old. Um, first American to win the Nobel Prize and like a Republican who cared about the environment. So I think he'd be fun to have dinner with, right?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: As long as you're serving like meat, you think he's the kind <laughs> of guy right. who would want to. He's not a vegan, that's for sure. All right. <laughs> you
1: might have to hunt it yourself yeah. or something. Yeah, Just
0: with hope him. It's not get on a the break. table. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay.
0: All right. Have a good weekend. Thanks for joining us. And Thanks, dry. Scott. That's a wrap for Friday. So February 16th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. Our team includes Marisa and Guy and Molly Solomon and Otis R. Taylor Jr. and Ethan Tobin-Lindsay. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening.